0: The United States is making a deliberate and concerted effort to expand its influence in the Asia-Pacific region. Its moves are being watched carefully by China, which is also flexing its muscles in the South China Sea. This Radio New Zealand Insight programme weighs up whether New Zealand could get caught in the middle of the race for influence in the Asia-Pacific.
1: Everybody all set? Okay. Well, it is a great pleasure to, to welcome my, my good friend Prime Minister Key to the Oval Office.
0: The U.S. President Barack Obama welcomes John Key to the Oval Office for a media briefing after the 80-minute meeting, which included a casual stroll around the White House grounds. During his trip to Washington, Mr. Key had talks with several people at the highest levels of the U.S. government, access that a New Zealand Prime Minister has not had for more than 30 years. The country's decision to go nuclear-free in the 1980s led to the breakdown of the ANZUS Treaty and the distinct cooling of relations between it and the US. But America's so-called pivot or rebalance towards the Asia-Pacific, a policy thought to be prompted by the rise of China, has helped lift New Zealand's profile again in Washington. I'm Chris Bramwell, and after travelling to New York and Washington to report on the Prime Minister's trip, in this Insight I explore whether New Zealand could end up in a difficult position as it tries to balance its important relationships with both the US and China.
2: I don't particularly like the term pivot because I think uh, it implies a, a dramatic change in policy, and I don't think that's what the Obama administration had in mind.
0: David Danoon is a professor of politics and economics at New York University. He also directs its Center on US China Relations. He says the basic concept behind the rebalance is a good one.
2: Clearly, several of our largest trading partners are in Asia, and there's absolutely no question that it's in the US interest to maintain those good trading relationships. During the George W. Bush administration, the US put such emphasis on Iraq and Afghanistan that many people in Asia felt we were neglecting them. Uh, For example, we had a national security adviser and a secretary of state, uh, Ms. Condi Rice, who several times traveled into the region and was even in the region during the ASEAN Regional Forum meetings and didn't bother to go. So I think many people in Asia felt the George W. Bush administration didn't pay adequate attention to Asia.
0: The Carnegie Council, based in New York, describes itself as an independent and non-partisan institution that aims to provide an ethical voice in international affairs. A senior fellow at the council, Devon Stewart, says the rebalance is a way for the U.S. to secure its position in a rising Asia.
3: The danger is obviously that with the United States focusing on, on its friends, it could alienate the Chinese, which is... I mean, China is obviously one of the most important countries in the world. So with any inventive foreign policy or economic policy, you always are going to have some side effects or unintended consequences. But what else is the United States going to do? I mean, it can't just stand by and watch a fast-changing Asia and stay, you know, stay relatively static. So the pivot is actually something similar to a recalibration or going back to a longer-term thinking about the Pacific as a major strategic field of competition and rivalry.
0: Stephen Stewart says the U.S. has been acutely aware of the growth of China for several years.
3: Does the United States worry about China? Absolutely. I mean, if you ask any Pentagon official or military officer, usually privately and sometimes publicly, they'll admit to being worried about China's growing naval capacity in the Pacific, its military spending in general. In, in marginal terms, it's, it's very big, but that's not to say that Japan and the United, the United States don't have their own assets. They have uh, incredibly advanced technology that definitely rivals and surpasses China's capacity. Press trade 2160 to Washington and Ampestous press trade 2164 to Boston. Oh. Both of these trains have entered the station.
0: During his quick trip to Washington, John Key had back-to-back meetings at the Pentagon, on Capitol Hill, the State Department and, of course, the White House. He says the access that he got was better than any other time he's visited and the relationship's gone from strength to strength.
4: Even if you go back three years ago, you know, the, uh, the visit time in the Oval Office was shorter, the, the remarks that the President made on camera were shorter. Now it's just a it's a very warm personal relationship, and I think we've worked hard to build that and take it from strength to strength. New Zealand and the United States are on the same page in pretty much every issue, so it's natural that that would be the case. We have been lead partners, I think, in places like TPP. You know, we have an intelligence sharing relationship, which is well known and well documented. So, yeah, I think it's uh, it's it's hard to see the relationship getting much better.
0: In 2012, the then U.S. Secretary of Defence, Leon Panetta, and New Zealand's Defence Minister, Jonathan Coleman, signed the Washington Declaration. It brought the two countries' defence forces closer together and pledged cooperation on maritime security. And this year, for the first time in 30 years, a New Zealand Navy ship has berthed in Pearl Harbour. John Key says it was Barack Obama himself who made that happen.
4: The President himself thought it was pretty silly that uh, a New Zealand naval vessel would be parked up uh, at the commercial part of Honolulu Port and actually on a training exercise with the United States would not actually be in that military facility. And I think it was the President's intervention himself that said, look, that just needs to be resolved. It's, just a, it's not a big thing in itself, but it's a tangible sign of the warmth of the relationship.
0: So why is New Zealand now being welcomed with open arms by the U.S.? Labour's Foreign Affairs spokesperson David Shearer says New Zealand's close relationship with China is part of the reason for that.
5: With the expansion of China and with the United States wary of that expansion, suddenly we've become, or suddenly, but we've evolved as being a much more strategic partner in the Pacific. We do know the Pacific very, very well, the South Pacific. Uh, We've got very good relations with the Pacific and the the RIM countries as well. We've got a very good relationship with China, much better than actually people recognise. I was in China three months ago, and I was told that China sends more senior people to New Zealand than any other country other than Singapore.
0: The Green Party MP Kennedy Graham says he thinks China wants the world to recognise the centrist position it's going to take in global politics in the 21st century.
2: Commensurate with its population, its growing uh, economic strength, uh, which would be matched with a military strength. And I think that that should be respected. It's a matter of handling it. I don't think China is wishing to to steal any march on the rest of the world, including the United States in this respect. They spoke about peaceful ascendancy. I think that needs to be respected and taken in faith. If, if there are, is activity to the contrary to undermine it, fine, then you second-guess it. But I haven't seen it yet. I know that military, the Chinese military is is growing, but it is still, I think, something like one quarter of the United States.
0: Peter Harris is the acting director of the Contemporary China Research Centre at Victoria University. He says Chinese government officials regard the rebalance as undesirable.
1: They don't use strong words like provocative, but that's clearly what they do think that it's provocative and privately they talk about China being contained by the United States since the United States has rebalanced and is reinforcing its friendships and alliances in the region. So there's a very strong degree of unhappiness about the rebalancing.
0: Another who can understand why the U.S. policy could cause disquiet is a professor of strategic studies at Victoria University, Robert Ason. He says the message from the Obama administration is that the rebalance is not all about China and not about containment. But he doesn't agree.
6: I think there's a little bit of containment there. I don't think it's a situation where it's a it's an all or nothing situation. I think there is engagement with China. I think the rebalance is primarily about China. It's a response to China's rise, and it's a way of, of not only recalibrating American power in Asia and moving some of the resources away from other theatres, but it is also reflects American concern that, that China has got a bit strong, and that some of the things that China is doing, the United States and some of its allies and friends don't like, and so there's a bit of containment there. But if you take it in a pure sense, it's deniable. And so the Americans can say, no, we're not doing containment, when actually there is a, there is a bit of that going on.
0: But New York University's David Denoon believes any suggestion the rebalancing was aimed at containment would be going too far.
2: I would say it would be a mistake to try to formally contain China. On the other hand, I think it's also a mistake not to let China know very clearly what we consider to be cooperative behavior and unacceptable behavior. And certainly in the last couple months, the Chinese have been extremely aggressive on territorial issues in a way that isn't going to help anyone. I don't think it's going to help them, and it certainly isn't going to help relations within the region.
0: Tension in the South China Sea. Hanoi and Beijing are in a standoff over a Chinese oil rig in these disputed waters. The captain of a Vietnamese Coast Guard... China's territorial disputes in the South China Sea are causing huge problems for its relationships with its neighbours in Southeast Asia. But the tensions are also making the U.S. nervous. At his media briefing after his talks with John Key, Barack Obama says they discussed what's happening in the region.
1: We both agree that... We welcome China's peaceful rise. And at the same time, we discussed my very strong view that it is important for us to be able to resolve disputes like maritime disputes uh, in accordance with international law and encourage all parties concerned to maintain a a legal framework for resolving issues as opposed to uh, possible escalation that could have an impact on uh, navigation and commerce.
0: While Mr Obama was talking about disquiet over the possible impact of territorial disputes, this written statement from the White House issued after the meeting had a stronger message.
1: In the South China Sea, the President and the Prime Minister called on ASEAN and China to reach early agreement on a meaningful and effective code of conduct. In discussing the need for diplomacy and dialogue to resolve disputes, the two leaders rejected the use of intimidation, coercion and aggression to advance any maritime claims.
0: Victoria University's Robert Asin says New Zealand needs to be cautious over statements issued on its behalf.
6: The risk with the statement, which was a White House fact sheet, is that it puts words into a New Zealand Prime Minister's mouth that we probably would not want to say. It's out there now, it's public and I think that means that the danger is is that it gives the impression that New Zealand's policy on Asia is not so much set in Wellington, but it's set in conjunction with our traditional partners, and we have to be very careful to maintain, I think, what is seen to be an autonomous policy on this, which can coincide with our partners, but does not give the impression that it's determined by that partnership.
0: But Dr Asin says New Zealand does need a closer defence relationship with the US than it did 10 years ago. Closer relationship,
6: yes. Is it possible to get too close? The answer is also yes. And I think we are getting to a stage now where the relationship, the security relationship, the defence relationship has accelerated over the last three or four years at a rate that I think has surprised a lot of people. The Washington Declaration, for example, that was we signed a couple of years ago, does, in a sense, commit New Zealand and the US to ranges of cooperation in wider maritime areas in Asia that I think we haven't really seen the full implications of. I think the Pacific Commander gave testimony in Congress a little while ago saying that New Zealand and the U.S. are conducting in the calendar year 22 exercises of one sort or another. And I think it is possible to get a bit too close to the U.S. And particularly on issues which, in which China's clearly has, has staked out its ground very strongly on those maritime issues, we have to be very careful.
0: Peter Harris from Victoria University's Contemporary China Research Centre says he doesn't think it's hard for the New Zealand government to express concern about tensions in the South China Sea, but it should do so in as neutral language as possible.
1: After all, um, New Zealand could do that not only in Washington, but equally well in Beijing. At the same time, you have to ask yourself, what value is there in speaking out? Some of the member states of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN, have kept a very low profile, just as New Zealand has done. And perhaps for this one, at the moment, it's better to sit on the mountains and watch the tigers fight, as the Chinese say.
0: Peter Harris says it's a good thing that New Zealand has kept a low profile in its responses so far.
1: But by keeping a low profile, you are in a sense postponing the day when you might have to take sides. I think everyone here in Wellington must hope that that never happens. But if there were a serious crisis involving China and the United States, either one side or the other might ask for its friends and allies in the the region, and New Zealand is closer to America now than it was, say, ten years ago, to take specific steps to express support for one position or another.
0: And therein lies the potential difficulty for New Zealand in being friends with both Washington and Beijing. The New Zealand First Leader and former Foreign Affairs Minister Winston Peters says it's critical that New Zealand keeps its foreign policy fiercely independent.
7: The implications are, first of all, you must protect your nation's sovereignty, its right to make decisions as a sovereign people, with its own government, without fear or fetter of outside influences. Now, I think that is under challenge now, from the Prime Minister's recent visit to the United States. And likewise, when we have concerns about human rights and other issues to do with China, we have, in my view, a right to express them as a free democracy that has been that way for 157 years. So my concern is that understanding of the sovereign purpose of the New Zealand government and its people may well be uh, compromised and it would be a very unsound idea to start picking friends here, you know, China or the United States. Uh, Sure, we have values and democratic traditions like the United States, but a, a country like New Zealand needs to be awfully careful about its foreign policy and unnecessarily upset other countries for no sound reason.
0: But viewing the issue from New York, Professor David Danoon doesn't think New Zealand would be too badly affected should tensions in the South China Sea spill over into a conflict.
2: New Zealand has an advantage in distance, uh, and that is that if there were ever, uh, most unfortunately, to be a conflict in Asia, it's likely to be a long way away from New Zealand. So that's one very basic question. On the other hand, New Zealand is seen as sort of an island of of, uh, or islands of peace and tranquility. And I think New Zealand can often play a role as a useful interlocutor.
0: Labour's David Shearer says New Zealand is in a very good place strategically.
2: It's when
5: something like the Iraq war comes up, events happen, and you have to look at how New Zealand's going to interact in, according to that independence where the sort of the rubber hits the road so words are fine but it's actions that really count at the end of the day I mean obviously the closest to the United States has its detractors around that as well on the other hand getting too economically dependent on China puts us in a vulnerable position as well but overall in terms of our Pacific strategic relationship I think we're in a very good position a very good uh, place to be.
0: David Shearer says the question really is about where China goes in terms of growing its military capability.
5: It's expanded its military in, in the last couple of years, and obviously that's created some concern in the US. But the US, putting it in perspective, I think the US's military is bigger than the, the next 10 countries or something like that combined. So we're looking at a big gap still between between one and the other. But I do think that some of the issues, their perceived differences are some ways merging and we might get to see a, a, a much more peaceful and much more cohesive Pacific.
1: High prestige projects funded by China, either through aid grants or soft loans, are almost everywhere to be seen in the Pacific Islands these days.
0: In Tonga, China has been putting more and more money into the region's island nations, triggering reports like this one from the ABC this money includes soft loans for development leaving many pacific countries heavily indebted to the chinese government late last year it announced a new assistance package for economic development in the pacific islands to be made up of a combination of commercial loans and aid potentially worth 2 and a quarter billion dollars and in january it announced it would provide support for upcoming elections in fiji Just a week later, the United States announced that it would give half a million U.S. dollars to support Fiji's transition to a democratic and inclusive political system. Victoria University's Robert Asin says the U.S. has sought to persuade the international community that the rebalance has a range of features, but he says it's clear that it's fundamentally about a competition for the future of the Asia-Pacific region. He says the implications for New Zealand of the jostling between the US and China for a position are significant. What this a
6: greater contest between the major powers for Asia's destiny basically puts New Zealand in a position where some trade-offs between our relationships with the great major powers becomes more likely, where the cont- if the contest between them gets ugly, and if, for example, you had a situation where China and Japan get into real difficulty and the United States comes to the support of Japan as its ally – then really we're in a much more dangerous region and that means that New Zealand won't necessarily be able to sustain all of these good relationships. It also means that the peaceful environment which has allowed commerce to flourish may also be challenged and it also means that a number of our partners, including in Southeast Asia, including in Australia, will be nervous as well. So we're looking at a situation which, if it goes bad, could really be quite serious for New Zealand and it means we have to be also very careful in our diplomacy and in all the things that we do in terms of our relationships between all of these major players because they're all looking at each other and they're looking at us as to where we put our positioning as well. Trans Pacific Partnership talks have stalled, despite promises of an imminent deal. Ministers from the 12 nations involved in the trade talks had signalled they were close to a deal as they began a four
0: day meeting in Singapore. The Trans -Pacific Pacific Partnership is also a central plank of the US's rebalance to the Asia Pacific. The deal includes New Zealand and the United States, along with 10 other countries around the Pacific Rim, but China is not part of that grouping. Stephen Stewart from the Carnegie Council worked on drafting early blueprints of the TPP in 2004. He says the idea was to reward countries that have similar governance structures and business standards.
3: There is an earnestly optimistic theory behind the whole TPP idea, which is that you can show... China, what it could have if it just raised its game a little bit. And, you know, I've heard some uh, Chinese officials have considered this as a, a carrot to change the way things are done in China. Nevertheless, the big risk is that you carve Asia down the middle and you create two even more distinct or concrete sides to Asia. So it could have some political negative implications that could possibly foster more tensions amid growing tensions in East, in East Asia.
0: Labor's David Shearer says the exclusion of China from the TPP is deliberate, but he says it's important to remember the deal includes other large economies.
5: Just the countries of Mexico and Canada, Vietnam, look, those economies are huge, not, not, not to mention just the US. Those economies are huge and we want to be there. The US wants to bind it all together, and the fact that China has been excluded is not accidental, I I would imagine. For us, it doesn't matter, because we've already got a free trade agreement with China for the United States. It's a bit more strategic.
0: The Council of Trade Unions economist and policy director Bill Rosenberg agrees. He says the TPP is a strategic deal, not a trade deal, and has more to do with the United States wanting to contain China.
8: It's about the United States saying... Look, uh, we seem to have lost ground to China in this area, and we don't like their economic policies. They're far too successful from our point of view. And so we want to not only get a group of countries around us that think like us in terms of economic and strategic policy, but also try and put pressure on China to change its economic policies more to our advantage.
0: Bill Rosenberg says there's too much in the TPP around investment, state-owned enterprises and intellectual property, which means China, under the governance structure of the Communist Party, cannot take part in the deal. He says Beijing is instead pushing a different deal with the Association of Southeast Asian Nations or ASEAN.
8: It's encouraging alternatives, and one of those is the so-called RCEP deal, which is much more a group of developing countries which have economic development interests, and therefore it won't be nearly as aimed at the corporate interests that are clearly driving the United States one.
0: New Zealand is also one of the 16 countries, along with China and Australia, who are part of the so-called RCEP negotiations. Those talks aim to have a deal sewn up by the end of next year. New Zealand already has free trade agreements in place with 12 of those countries and is in negotiations with India and Korea. The deal will really only offer New Zealand a chance to improve some of its existing arrangements at the margins. Much of the talk about the TPP from the New Zealand perspective is about getting the country's agricultural products into the US but Bill Rosenberg says that's a red herring. He says U.S. agricultural production is at a level where it can supply its own domestic market and will have little need to import products.
8: They're getting to a stage where they can quite profitably export uh, dairy products and, and other things. They're actually one of the world's biggest agricultural exporters as it is. So, you know, there are no no minnow in this area. So what is likely to happen, is that the United States is going to become a much greater competitor and much keener competitor with New Zealand's dairy exports in particular. And it's not going to be an easy ride.
0: Bill Rosenberg says New Zealand's FTA with China was heralded as a huge breakthrough. But he says most of the country's dairy products exported to China are subject to the same tariffs they always were – He says the huge rise in exports to China came more from an increase in demand than from greater market access. The New Zealand First Leader and former Foreign Affairs Minister Winston Peters agrees.
7: If you analyse the exponential growth of Australia's uh, economic performance with China without a free trade agreement, until the mining collapse, it was superior to ours with a free trade agreement. What's the moral of the story? Quality goods sell regardless of these arrangements. It's my great privilege to welcome the Prime Minister of New Zealand, a great, great Kiwi friend of the United States, and someone I've
0: New Zealand's increasingly cosy relationship with the US will be closely watched from China and vice versa. What many suggest current and future New Zealand governments should do is ensure they tread a careful line managing those relationships and maintain the country's long-standing and widely respected independent foreign policy. I'm Chris Bramwell, and that's Insight for this week. If you would like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radioNZ.co.nz or send us a tweet at rnz I wrote and presented that programme. It was produced by Philippa Tolley with technical production by Mark Chesterman.